Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is March the 4th, and one of the themes that we seem to come back to time and time again is the one of history repeating itself. Nigeria's been in the news this week uh, for serious consumers of, of, new, of news journalism. Um, the New York Times informs us that hundreds of girls were abducted uh, from a Nigerian school and then they were freed. Uh, the, this story, though, did result in violence and there are lots more threats um, from a, a terrorist group called Boko Haram about executing uh, other other hostages. I think this particular hostage actually may have been freed. This, of course, all brings to mind the terrible events of 14th and 15th of April 2014 uh, in Chibok, uh, in the north, um, uh, the northeastern part of uh, Nigeria. Uh, where several hundred uh, Nigerian schoolchildren were kidnapped. This became a cause celebre internationally by this group called Boko Haram. So history is repeating itself. And we have a book, as it happens, this week about uh, the events of 2014 by two very distinguished Wall Street Journal reporters, Joe Parkinson and Drew Hinson called Bring Back Our Girls. It's a really interesting narrative, not only uh, a narrative about what happened in Nigeria, but the, the broader meaning of this in our celebrity-obsessed social media environment. Um, let, me, let me bring in Drew, uh, Drew Hinshaw, one of the co-authors of the book. Uh, Drew, why the book? Why have you spent several years uh, researching. I know you were, you're based in Warsaw now, but you were uh, based yeah. uh, in Africa for the Wall Street Journal. That's right. I had been covering Boko Haram since really the conflict began. And, you know, we would have these attacks that were just horrible. 30 people killed, 100 people killed, 80 people killed. And I was creating word docs, you know, for each like new attack. Like, and I would title them with the number of people killed, Boko 30, Boko 70, Boko 217. I mean, it was really that bad. And all of a sudden this kidnapping happened and within hours we were speaking to the parents and suddenly we this was a chance not to write about people's deaths and these tragedies but to write about like these people's lives i mean these young women were still they were missing they were still out there and their parents were dealing with this and it, it, it sort of was heartbreaking obviously for anybody um so that's why we kind of started covering this uh right off the bat in 2014 but then many many years later when they went home uh, we started to, we, we were speaking with a, a cabinet minister in Nigeria who just sort of offhandedly and with a nervous chuckle, you know, we were asking why is Boko Haram still out there, still ascendant? They had really been on, the, uh, on a tear in the weeks before. This was in late 2017. And he sort of made this offhanded chuckling joke 
that you know it's because we gave them millions of euros for the cheapo girls and suddenly there was like a light bulb in my head and joe's head of that you know this cause bring back our girls millions of us tweeted this it had a consequence it had effects and we were really interested in, in sort of what it took to bring home these young women to satisfy this twitter demand and um and also what were the consequences of millions of us pressing you know bring back our girls tweeting that i don't know if that's a, a good introductory answer uh yeah you you have a wonderful description of the school itself uh you say the class of 2014 at the chibok government secondary school for girls were only four weeks from finishing senior year when almost 300 of them were seized by armed men and packed onto pickup trucks that disappeared into the night it was a monday mm -hmm. and the students had spent the afternoon finishing a three-hour civics exam in the evening, relaxing on campus, studying in their dorms or gathering in small circles in the prayer room. Uh, the book is beautifully written. Um, Joe, this is a book more than just about a violent kidnapping. It's about female liberation in the developing world, isn't it? It is. I mean, we've certainly never met um individuals in all of our reporting. Drew and I have both been foreign correspondents uh, for over a decade and have insurgencies um, and revolution lots of places across the world. But getting access to um, the women who, who, who spent three years in captivity, in the captivity of a, a, a terrorist group that's almost become a kind of word for extreme violence and um, depravity, uh, listening to their story and hearing um, how over the years, over the days and as the days and months turned, they started to not only be able to survive, but to be able to, to resist, to be able to kind of keep their identity, to be able to keep their sense of solidarity and their sense of um, It really is just the most mind-blowing story and the most kind of humbling story that, that, that I think have, uh, have been told before. So um, just trying to kind of render that and um, put it into a book, we constantly, the most important thing is to sort of, just to get out of the story from a selling perspective. It's so incredible what they went through and so amazing the courage that they showed, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, the expression of that, um, that we feel um, yeah, to us. Humility sort of runs through some of the narrative, but the reverse of humility, I guess, hubris also is part of the story. You link up this story with um, our social media uh, culture. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how Bring Back Our Girls became the dominant meme, uh, one of the great, one of the first most successful memes in our Twitter-centric culture. Um, you say, you write brilliantly, through the unpredictable pinball, pinball mechanics of social media, it shot out of West Africa and into the celebrity sphere boosted by Hollywood and hip-hop royalty, then captured the global imagination. Uh, Joe, uh, um, Drew, what happened? Right. This came at this moment when maybe we were all a bit more naive about like the internet and what social media could do. Tahrir Square had happened, Arab Spring had happened. And 
this was a protest in Nigeria. It was a very sad protest, you know, like dozens of people, but just dozens were protesting on a trash strewn medium in the capital. Across the street, there was this luxury hotel that was welcoming investors for this big economic conference. And then across the street are these mostly women dressed all in red saying, bring back our girls, talking about this kidnapping that happened on the other side of the country in a small town that most Nigerians had never heard of. And it stayed like that until it started to percolate on Twitter. And it really, then this is where the story takes a very kind of 21st century. It began, uh, began with this uh, music. Exactly. Of, I mean, of all the people, Russell right? Russell Simmons, of all people. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. A man of um, a checkered path as well. Dozen, more than a dozen, I've forgotten the exact number. It's just a very high number of women have accused him of sexual assault, sexual misconduct, or even rape. And um, at the time, he was sitting on a yacht in international waters, and he was reading a story on a website that he uh, owns that had carried a small article about it. And he thinks, you know, good outcomes lead to good, good energy leads to good outcomes. And he tweets this. And then a few hours later, some of the people that follow him start to tweet this common, the rapper common. Young Jeezy, the rapper Young Jeezy, Mary J. Blige. And all of a sudden, there's this phenomenon, which interestingly, it's, it's Twitter, right? Celebrities tweeting, but it recalls, you know, Live Aid. It recalls the protests around Biafra when Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon raised their voices and money for the youth of Biafra. All of a sudden, once again, we have this pattern playing out where Western celebrities are saying there are African children in need and only, you know, Help me help them, basically. It's the same thing as playing out on 21st century media. So it's, it's history repeating itself again. Uh, Joe, the thing really got going then when the heavyweight of heavyweights got involved. Uh, you have a, a lovely description at the beginning of the book. Michelle Obama was upstairs in the White House residential quarters watching the, Munich, the morning news report, a story of suffering and social media and, whether, and wondering whether to retweet. It was May 7th, 2014. Of course, um, she did retweet, bring back, bring back our girls. And Michelle Obama gave the movement profound credibility. Uh, Joe, how do you make sense of, of Obama's involvement in this? And do you think in the long term, she kind of regretted it? I think you're right. When most people think about their memories of this episode, there's one image in the West, at least, that stays with them. It's a um, placard in the room of the White House. And that was really the crest of the Twitter wave, the wave that started with Russell Simmons, went all the way through kind of some of the biggest names in, in hip hop and pop and into Hollywood and from Hollywood went to, you know, the B shows, Ellen, Oprah, the Pope, the strangest coalition, including people like bringing people like Rush Limbaugh and Malala and Prime Minister David Cameron. But Michelle Obama was really the if. And it was kind of an amazing time because as Michelle was holding that placard, um, Barack Obama had, had actually just made the decision that he was going to send to go and find the Chibok girls. And it, it was this sort of, it was this kind of threshold moment in the history of the internet. And as you say, sort of social media's impact on politics and even military affairs because a hashtag that ignited all military invention. And it was only six days between Russell Simmons' tweet and American drones starting to, um, to be deployed. 
Um, whether Michelle um, regrets that, I have no insight into that. I think she did it for the right reasons. And I think- We'll have to get her on the show, you... Michelle. Michelle, if you're watching, uh, you'll have to come <laughs> on the show and let us know. Oh, in the 19th century, I, I we had, uh, so, sorry, in the 19th century, we had gunboat diplomacy. Now we have Twitter diplomacy. And not everyone, of course, is an admirer of what happened. Um, the, the, the very distinguished Nigerian writer Trisha Adalbi Nawabami, and I apologize if I get her wrong, uh, her, uh, pronounce her name wrong. She wrote, the hashtag unwittingly provided Boko Haram with a roadmap to use gender violence to further its global brand. So everyone's in the branding business. Sorry, Drew, I, I, I cut you yeah, off. No, I was just going to answer the question, having spoken to Michelle Obama's staff a, a good bit about this. No, I don't think that she regrets it. I think this was, um, she was very cautiously stepping into um, what became a very important cause for her, which is girls' education. And this kidnapping arrived at this very moment when people in the West were start. you know, Malala's book had just come out. People were starting to talk about this, this gap, this gender gap, in, particularly in secondary education. So, you know, I don't think, and I, this was something Joe and I wanted to balance here. We don't, we're not rendering a judgment on the hashtag. We're not saying this was good, this is bad, it was slacktivism, none of that. If writers aren't going to provide a judgment, then well, who well here's my judgment. My judgment is it mattered. It, it's, it lit a fuse of unintended consequences that continues to burn in Nigeria. And, then, and the, to, to stack it all up and say, well, the good things were 103 women went home. The bad things were a ransom was paid. The good things were the drones provided maybe some useful intelligence. The bad thing is, well, wait, these are drones. Are we sure this is what we want to do? It's sort of incalculable. The only thing that's sure is with the tap of the screen, we are able to change lives continents away. And that's an incredible power that we have that I don't think people have adequately reflected on. Um, Look, the book is so certainly an argument against those who's... Sorry, I was just going to say the book is certainly an argument against those who say that social media is justism and doesn't matter. Slacktivism or not, it's much easier to just click tweet or retweet than to actually go to the streets or to raise money or to do the, the legwork that, you know, kind of activism once upon a time tended to entail. But what text was, these tweets made a huge difference and continue to make a huge difference to the conflict in northeast Nigeria. <clears throat> they really re redrew the battle lines. And the American drones that deployed in 2014, they're still still flying there, and the deployment has now become a bigger operation across four countries. And the you know the insurgency continues. Most of the Nigerian ministers you know that we spoke to who deal with the war plan just could not believe this took them totally by surprise. A series of hashtags, tweet properties, and then actors could uh, so fundamentally rechange the rules of war in their part of the world, and actually a part of the world that wasn't even really connected to the, the internet. That's the ultimate paradox. Well, you say that um, this is not uh, not just a story of a remote tragedy stricken town in Nigeria, but a parable and perhaps a cautionary tale about the flawed interconnected workings of our butterfly winged world. Um, is one of the parables about the struggle of the state in Nigeria to establish authority which is paralleled in a peculiar way by the way in which Twitter itself has fragmented authority and trust in the media world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that's spot on. Um, the the 
where to begin? That was something we want to say here, which is if you think Boko Haram is, is these distant guys living off in the wilderness and tent camps and that kind of thing, and they've got nothing to do with our modern life. Well, their leader was posting hours long videos on YouTube, threatening to kill people, threatening to kill entire, threatening effectively ethnic cleansing. And they just sat there on YouTube for year, for months at least, possibly years. Like this is a 21st century story. Boko Haram is not something from like some backwards group from long ago that just happens to still be existing in our 21st. No, this is a group that came out of the same era that Twitter birthed. So same, tell me a little bit about yeah. Boko Haram because they always yeah. seem to be the, the the piece of the story that people don't address. Um, yeah, exactly. Is the closest equivalent ISIS? I mean, they're sure, clearly I mean, that's, a, a radical similar. movement on the yeah. ISIS model. Similar, right? I mean, yeah, you know, I always, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know. I think there's this war on terror thing to make all these groups some part of some grand alliance. And, you know, I always a little bit wary of make, making things too simple, maybe. But yeah, these are these, this is a group that's easier to condemn than understand. It was so easy for all of us and is to this day to tweet about how bad they are because they've committed war crimes. But one thing we thought was really interesting was somebody's got to do the work of understanding these, these young men mostly and, and what they want, why they're fighting. And part of what motivated us to write the book is the Swiss effort here. These guys spent years in, you know, turning part of the embassy into a classroom for the study of Boko Haram, going on motorbikes into the forest to meet these, you know, dangerous individuals to understand who are these guys, what do they want, and how can we reason with them? And we found that really interesting. Um, Joe, do you want to add something to that about this, 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 this parable of... Um of uh, Boko Haram being the other side of the fragmented uh, digital media world in the West, this, this collapse of the authority of the Nigerian state so that parts of Nigeria remain ungovernable. You mentioned in your book there are still 22,000 Nigerians missing from these kidnappings, which reflect the breakdown of the state. We seem to see the same thing in some ways happening in America. Uh, the collapse of perhaps federal authority in, in some parts of the country, uh, the breakup of the, tex, uh, the Texas electricity grid. Did, um, did covering this story teach you more about the crisis in the West as well as what's happening in Nigeria? That's a great question. And um, certainly it taught us a lot about the way that tend to want to see itself in crises all over the world. So part of the reason that the Twitter campaign took off was because we sort of shifted the camera lens slightly about these girls who were living in a very, very, you know, kind of alien. People couldn't really picture this part of northern Nigeria that's on the southern kind of shore of the Sahel Desert. And we started to make these girls just like us. They had the same dreams, the same hopes, the same aspirations, even in some renderings, trappings of their life. And that wasn't really true. And the situation in Nigeria was not really, in that part of Nigeria, was not really reminiscent of anything that was happening in the West, even though there was still a universal story because every parent could imagine losing their son or losing their daughter. But what, what we see with Boko Haram and its ability to take maximum or at least take, you know, kind of more advantage of networks like Twitter, even though they're kind of non-state actors, we absolutely whether it's sort of so-called like surgent media or whether it's people that are interested in attacking or breaking down the state, you know, social media has become an incredibly effective tool. And as Drew said, Boko Haram, 
Ram, the way that they're here is something which is medieval or barbaric or backward or like so antiquated. And of course, there's elements of their ideology, which is exactly that. But the way they capitalized on Twitter, especially, and the way that Abu Bakr Shakao, the leader of Boko Haram, played Bring Back Our Girls hashtag to his advantage, he managed to turn Boko Haram from being really not on anyone's radar to a sort of global terrorist outfit that quite quickly afterwards was able to do a merger deal with his, you know, it really changed the course of the war. Um, Drew, reading your book and, and reading about these events, it seems to me that there may be another war involved here too, not just between Islam and Christianity or between uh, Africa and the West, but also between men and women. Now, I'm not saying that Boko Haram was exclusively a male organization, and I know that many men have also been kidnapped by Boko Haram, but really this is a story about the struggle between men and women in a developing country, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just personally uh, really blown away by the, um, the fortitude that the, the young women we followed, they showed. And this is a, a part of Nigeria where a certain deference to men is, is, is cultural. It's, it's, it's a part of um, the culture of Northeast Nigeria. They're in a situation where the men around them have guns, have threatened to kill them, have threatened to behead them, have followed through on threats to beat them, threats to, deny, threats to deny them food, deny them water even. And in that environment, these young women in this kind of parallel universe, because they don't even know about the hashtag, they realize, hey, we have some special value here and we can use it. And we can basically use it to just defy Bokoram at every turn over and over and over again to say no, to say that, you know, you can't force us into getting quote unquote married, what the Bokoram called married. You can't force us into that. You can't force us into your religion. You, they realize their value even though they'd never heard of Twitter to this day, some of them, they don't quite, you know, like they haven't been on Twitter. They just, you know, um, yet they, that hashtag in this parallel universe gave them this value that they used to sort of up in the expectations of them, both as hostages and as young women in a very, very conservative place. Yeah. It's um, Joe, it, it really is a remarkable story of resistance of female resistance against men with guns, remarkably brave, uh, women. Uh, th this woman in particular, Naomi Ad Adamu, is a, is a star in, in the narrative. What is it about Naomi that inspired you so much and should inspire readers? Oh, where to begin? I mean, Naomi is, she's not your conventional heroine. You know, you know she was, um, before the kidnap, her life had been a real, she was physically and academically um, weak. You know, she really struggled at school. She had kidney problems that kept her out for years. She was older than a lot of her classmates, which was trying to finish high school. And she told her that they had a nickname for her, which was Mamamoo, like our mother. And she had this kind of, you know, despite all the challenges, she had this maternal instinct and this, this, this friends all saw in her. But that came into it mention in, in the list when you know, really Boko Haram was trying to break the resolve of the Chibok girls, was trying to convince the girls that their families died, was trying to girls they Chibok Boko Haram territory again. They wanted them to get married to the fighters. And a small group led by Naomi 
refused and resisted. And this resistance started with writing diaries uh, in secret. Islam had given them an Islamic verse. It went from diaries to singing hymns and songs, first of all in secret and then louder so that their friends could hear, so that they could remember who they were and remember their identity, their religious identity, their cultural identity, and their identity people. And it went from singing songs even to in the uh, parts of their captivity when the girls were separated and some of the girls in a different group were being loved by a Boko Haram commander into submission. Naomi and her friends, they created a breadline. They, in secret, took the food that they had in surplus, secretly took it to the next camp and distributed it to them, um, which strengthened them. I mean, these stories that we heard, which would be kind of, you know, amazing in, in a normal context, in the context of that captivity in the context of those conditions was really jaw-dropping something like the stories you hear in the second world war Christians in rome who right. were persecuted who were singing songs like the threats the stories of of jews in the second world war who were you know feeding each other and hiding each other it was, it was uh, the mamamu they the chief infidel because they really worried about the influence she was having on her friends. Yeah, and it's astonishing to me that they didn't just shoot her. The story in some way ends happily. Many of the women were saved. Here we have some pictures and some pictures of when they were freed. Uh, it's an inspiring story. I'm sure it's gonna get made into a movie. Have you sold the movie rights yet? No, no. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I- We haven't, I, if anyone wants to. Yeah, well, anyone watching um, definitely needs the movie rights. As you say, Joe, this is the, as a wonderful movie here of, of female resistance against um, the, the, the barbarism of, 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 of pre-modern men against uh, women who want to emancipate themselves. I wonder also um, whether there's a broader story here of female emancipation in the developing world more generally in political terms uh, Malala has come up um, a couple of times um, in this story, of course. Uh, but there are more and more stories of, um, of, of, of women like Malala who are, um, who are demanding female rights in the developing world. Um, there was a story this morning um, about a, a young woman in India who is uh, using the uh, Twitter to protest the rights of farmers in northern India. Do you guys see uh, a, a broader theme here in terms of yeah, young women around the world, whether it's India absolutely. or Pakistan or perhaps even yeah. North America demanding political rights? Yeah, I think I, I, absolutely. And I, I think that there's another side of that coin, which is, you know, northern Nigeria, northeast Nigeria experienced this extreme breakdown economically and socially. And I think that there is a tendency in that, in, in each society, sort of create a, a, a notion of traditionality that people cling to, which often involves, you know, a very certain role for men and a very certain role for women. And that is a part of the Boko Haram story is, you know, these men trying to impose this very sort of, yeah, I don't even know if the word is traditional, but a very strict role for what men do and what women do but another side of that is this war, wars like this often like upend what women can do and can't do. 
women find themselves in very unusual situations like the, the women in our book or you know i mean this is true in wars like the second world war with women working in factories and, and things like that so i think that there's these cultural changes that come out of, of of a society breaking down and then going into a sort of civil conflict um create new space for for redefining how we think about gender and i, I do think that's happening as you know as an observer someone who spent 10 years in Niger covering nigeria i think that is happening in the northeast for sure Last um, yesterday, actually, we had the the British polemical writer Kehinde Andrews on the show. He has a new book, very controversial new book out, "The New Age of Empire: How Racism and Colonialism Still Rules the World." Uh, uh, Andrews' reading of the world is that things haven't really changed when it comes to colonialism um, and the relationship between the West and particular Africa. Here we have the image of Vanessa Nakate in. Uganda, another environmental activist using the kind of Twitter model to drive change. In very broad terms, let me uh, let me bring uh, Joe back in. Um, what does your book tell us about the legacy of colonialism and this imbalance between the West and Africa, and whether or not Africa can indeed become the continent of the 21st century? Easy question to end on, Joe. <laughs> that's uh that's a big one but i will try i think um when it comes to when it comes to the twitter campaign at least it is certainly kind of noble intention and the very universe bringing back our girls also within a kind of uh you know colonial uh framework and, and as drew said before it certainly followed a lot of the same tropes as um as live before that, even the intervention in, in Biafra, which was also well-intentioned, but that also had incredibly complicated consequences uh, that weren't really covered anything like the same scrutiny. Um, the initial campaign was covered. You know, what we, what we have in northern Nigeria, at least, is a still declining security situation, a still expanding Western and foreign military presence, and we don't have kind of imminent solutions. So the cycle, unfortunately, despite the bravery of some of the people involved and despite, you know, all of these incredible stories that we discovered through talking to the characters who are working on the margins and of course girls, structurally, um, Nigeria, you know, unfortunately is not in a position at the moment to be leading the next century. You know, we hope like reversal you know the economic fortunes that that can change, um, but right now the situation is 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 incredibly difficult, especially with the demographic situation they have there. The country would be um, is the third biggest population uh, in the world by 20, and at the moment, part of what's driving uh, all the insecurity and rise in militancy in the north of the country is just the lack of jobs. And unless there's a transformation in the economy there. It's very difficult to, see, you know, trend uh, in the next uh, in the next few years. Uh, Drew, do you want to add something to that? I mean, it's really kind of should we be thinking about this story uh, as as a parable written by George Orwell or by Don DeLillo? I, I guess I'd just say that I, I I I there is a point at which I I, I definitely agree that these tools we use this you know hashtag activism it has the potential to become another form of sort of Western paternalism, 
towards you know developing countries that that is there that's obviously there another side of the coin is that you know this hashtag wasn't invented by westerners this didn't westerners didn't say oh let's you know this hashtag was invented by nigerians you know we write in our book about obiaza kwasili this activist who protested for months and months, years she herself asked for hillary clinton to tweet this you know she herself campaigned for people outside nigeria so on the one hand i can see this as a parable of look how you know once we're given twitter we replicate this pattern of paternalism towards other people like live aid for example maybe but i can also see another story which is that um it's really very complicated like nigerians themselves look to the west can you help us our own government is incompetent and has allowed hundreds of women to go disappearing can you help us because those women don't deserve to be lost well it's a wonderfully rich book um and a wonderfully rich story i don't know about wonderfully it's a tragically perplexingly uh complicated story uh you guys are also uh perplexingly complicated your wall street journal reporters one in uh one in johannesburg and one in warsaw you guys have been split up i don't know quite why um you're talking to us from your respective offices uh you have this brilliant new book out a must read for anyone who wants to understand the complexity of our age bring back our girls out today um joe in addition to your book uh your surrounded by books what other books could people be reading in these strange times i don't have anything profound to offer about our strange times as a roadmap to understand them because i think i'm just as confused as everybody else is at the moment but i will say that i have avoided recently uh i don't normally read much of him but it's what i talk about when i talk about running and it's about the use of through physical exercise to find clarity and peace and some sense of uh balance which i found map for dealing with um you know only 20 actually so rather than jg ballard or 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 don delilo or george orwell murakami is the guy who can make sense of this world what about you drew anything else yeah, to let me see what i have on here <laughs> i was i was mentioning to joe you know we i feel that there's like Nigeria is such a rich country, you know. We're we're adding this as as outsiders who really try to understand one specific story and report everything we can. But I really like this book came out in October, and I've been recommending it because it's just there could be so much more nonfiction. There's so many great Nigerian novelists, you know. But like Nigeria is like it's one of these countries where like truth really is stranger than fiction, and like maybe like nonfiction. It's like it, you know if you want a remarkable anyway. So I I really enjoyed this book. It's a story about. Um, they kind of make the case that modern Nigeria uh, uh, began not with British colonialism, but with a conquest that took place in 1803 as Napoleon was sweeping Europe. Um, uh, Usman Danfodio was sweeping Nigeria, very similar. That makes it sound kind of dry, like it's history, but it's actually full of amazing stories of the people who created this country. You know, British explorers who walked the Sahara Desert only to return with a map that was completely wrong. And they thought, they came back to London thinking we found the source of the Niger River and actually it was just something that someone had drawn for them. You know, it's like full of these amazing, great stories. It's called Formation and it's by Fola Fagbule. And um, I really recommend it if, if anybody um, Well, you, you guys are- Drew and uh, Joe, you are the, the 21st century inheritors of that uh, investigatory uh, tradition in, in, in Western culture. You're presenting this world in a, in, in a wonderfully complex, but also 
extremely readable way. As I said, your book, Bring Back Our Girls, is out today. The Astonishing Survival and Rescue of Nigeria's Missing Schoolgirls. Above all else, it's a book about uh, female spirit and political resistance. I want to congratulate you enormously on the book. I don't quite know how you did it, especially from your various perches in South Africa and Poland. Keep well, and we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future to, to rethink uh, Nigeria, Africa, and all the other complicated issues in the 21st century world. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.